Muhammad was directly involved in those moments you saw. Because I, was, I went, unlike the rest of the team member, I traveled with him to Malawi. So we were together in the danger. I was holding his hands and I held him. I mean, we were holding hands when the people were throwing the knives at me at the back and hitting me with the stones and all that. I held on to Ahmed. So he was right in the thick of... Ahmed has never been a coward. Tiger Eye is not a team of someone sitting at the top and saying, hey, somebody should go and do it. No, we are very practical. And we are very careful in choosing the people we term as investigators. Everybody, what Ahmed did, everybody in the team can do. What I do, everybody in the team is trained to be able to do it. So Malawi is not exceptional. We've done other neck-racking investigations in similar angles, and Ahmed has triumphed in that. Welcome to Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. And this is The Murder of Ahmed Devela. Part 1. Ahmed was no coward. Since the number 12 expose, an investigative piece that shook the very foundations of the Ghana Football Association, Ahmed has never been a coward. So as you can see, rolling on the screen. This is a boy! Or a bad boy! Ahmed worked closely with the award-winning investigative journalist Anas Aramiyao Anas. Together they exposed corruption in the Ghanaian judiciary, health sector, and most recently, soccer. That I must prefer the noisy, boisterous, sometimes scurrilous media of today. Many here may not know that they were neighbors to a member of one of the world's foremost team of investigative journalists. So what about those who say putting his face and his name and where he lives could be vital information for those who may want to hurt him? No, and so in other words, you are accomplice. It was necessary for me to bring the guy's picture out for people to see who he is. The truth will triumph. On the 3rd of May 2018, the Ghanaian president, Nana Akufu Addo, walked onto a stage in Accra. I'm very grateful to the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, for the invitation to participate in this year's World Press Freedom Day, which is being held in our capital city of Accra for the first time on the theme keeping power in check, media, justice, and the rule of law. We are proud to host this year's event. And those of you who come from beyond our shores are welcome amongst the people who pride themselves on their sense of hospitality. Ghana for a long time has been considered a shining light for press freedom. And it was in 2018 that Akufu Odo hosted UNESCO's World Press Freedom Day. At the time, Ghana sat 26th on the Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Index. That was ahead of the UK, France, the United States. In fact, Ghana sat higher than any other country on the continent of Africa. I will say again that I must prefer the noisy, boisterous, sometimes scurrilous media of today to the monotonous, praise-singing, sycophantic one of yesteryear. 
The Ghanaian media has, in fact, enriched the nation's governance by its curiosity, investigative skills, and persistence. I assure you that the Ghanaian people will continue to defend the right to free expression to the very end because of their determination to build a free, open society with accountable governance. But despite these words, four years on in 2022, Ghana's position in that same Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Index had dropped from 26th to 60th, and articles were appearing in which Ghanaian journalists feared for the future of press freedom in the country. Once again, let me thank UNESCO for honouring Accra with this event, and may God bless us all. I thank you. Why has this happened? My name is Anas Arimiyao Anas. I'm an undercover journalist and a lawyer from Ghana. Anonymity has always been my secret weapon. I have worked across the length and breadth of the continent, exposing human rights abuse, organized crime. I am seen as a very controversial journalist because I don't do what a normal journalist does. I name, I shame and jail. You may have problems with it, but it works. It works in my part of the world. You may have come across Anas. He's a remarkable journalist famed for wearing a beaded mask and never revealing his face. The reason is that his undercover agency, Tiger IPI, specialise in undercover journalism. Tiger Eye is that organisation which I won't call a normal newsroom setup. It's purely investigative. You know, when you are in a normal newsroom setup, you are unable to dedicate a lot of time to investigations because of the pressures that come up. But we are specifically for investigation. So we have time. We have time because time allows you to get death. Now, Tiger Eye over the years has churned out some of the brilliant stories, if not in the world, but on the continent. And there are issues that are dear to the very African or the very Ghanaian. When we say a story is a story at Tiger Eye, it means that that story must affect our grandmothers in the village. Tiger Eye is hinged on impacts. We ensure that our stories end up bringing a smile to the average Ghanaian or the average African. We have over the years worked with Al Jazeera, BBC, collaborated with CNN and many other international media houses in the quest of doing some qualitative and developmental journalism. That stands the test of time. One of the investigations that Tiger IPI worked on, which uncovered a human trafficking ring in Accra, resulted in three Chinese traffickers being convicted for trafficking women from China to work in a restaurant in Ghana. But that restaurant didn't exist. Instead, the women were then forced into sexual exploitation when they arrived. Speaking to the Ghanaian parliament in 2009, President Obama praised Anas and his team. Victors who resist calls to wield power against the opposition in unfair ways. We see that spirit in courageous journalists like Anas, 
Harry Mayer, Yeo Anas, who, who risked his life to report the truth. We see it and although Tigray PI's methods have been called controversial by some, a Ghanaian lawyer called Yab Wafo, now the national president of the Ghana Bar Association, described Anas and his methods as ethically wrong. You may disagree with me that a journalist must just report. Sorry, I don't just report. Because I can't live under the umbrella. I can't live on the same street with criminals. Look, we have different systems. The significant point that you have to acknowledge is that the African continent has what I call mushrooming democracy. Our democracies are not up to 80 years, some 60, some 50. The West has had a democracy for over 400 years. So we are going through our feeding problems. And who says America didn't have its share? of the problems. So when you are going through your thieving problems, you must be strong enough to embrace your problems and get your kind of journalism that is tailored to assist your people. And I say that there's no journalism that is as effective as ensuring that when I get the hardcore evidence with my camera, I go and stand in the court of law, testify to the crime, and ensure that the bad guys are jailed. Because it gives me peace of mind. Because it helps society progress. Maybe your systems are that strong, so that when this happens, they have the capacity to grab those people and put them in jail. But we have institutions that are growing steadily on the African continent. And so if you took one step to assist these institutions, I see nothing wrong with it. It will come with dangers. It will come with problems. But who says journalism is a tea party? It's not. It's a hot kitchen. And if you don't have the energy, you get out. Anas and Tigray are well known around the world. And it was at Tigray that a young aspiring journalist learned his craft. His name was Ahmed Hussein Swale Devela, but before joining Tiger Eye, he had to pass a test. Anas told Ahmed to head to a place called Tema, which is east along the coast next to Accra. There he had to report on a story about cocaine, but Ahmed blew his cover and got arrested. Anas said in an interview with the BBC that he did not perform to my expectation and that was that. But Ahmed was persistent and wrote to Anas a long letter asking for a second chance, and it was granted. Ahmed was a member of our team, and he joined us when he started the University of Ghana. He went through training, and he eventually qualified, and with time became a senior investigator. So... When Ahmed actually came closer, when one of our team members, one of the investigators, traveled abroad to school. So Ahmed automatically inherited that position where he had a lot of control. So Ahmed was one of the heartbeats of Tiger Eye. And we have fun memories of him. Very interesting young man, can be very jovial. 
at the same time very religious and could make things work within the team. According to those who worked alongside Ahmed, he was a quiet and unassuming man who became known as the encyclopedia of the team due to his understanding of each project and a spiritual leader because of his tendency to pray before the team went undercover. Ahmed was involved in many of Tiger IPI's most impactful investigations. For example, one called Ghana in the Eyes of God, which focused on the judiciary. Hundreds were caught up in the scandal, even resulting in 34 judges resigning after being caught taking bribes. Al Jazeera did a documentary on the story called Justice. Another and the first of Anas's work that I came across was for the BBC called Malawi's Human Harvest. It's a truly shocking documentary about a series of unsolved murders in northern Malawi relating to something called muti, which is a practice of harvesting human body parts for good luck rituals. I remember the first time I saw this documentary a few years ago and there was one scene where the locals confront Anas and his entourage. It's a terrifying moment when the crowd become very aggressive and start kicking and pushing the journalists. Anas was struck on the head with a large stone and someone cut his clothes with a knife. You can hear one of his teams say, they're going to kill us. And then Anas saying in the VO that, we knew at that moment we were going to die. I held the hand of my producer. And then Anas said, I'm here, I'm here with you. I'm here, I'm here, let me hold you. Let me hold you. It was at that moment that Anas, Ahmed and the others ran holding onto each other's arms and somehow they made it to the home of the local chief where the situation was calmed and they made it out alive. Ahmed was directly involved in those moments you saw. I went, unlike the rest of the team member, I traveled with him to Malawi. So we were together in the danger. I was holding his hands and... I held him. I mean, we were holding hands when the people were throwing the knives at me at the back and hitting me with the stones and all that. I held on to Ahmed. So he was right in the thick of... Ahmed has never been a coward. Tiger Eye is not a team of someone sitting at the top and saying, hey, somebody should go and do it. No, we are very practical. And we are very careful in choosing the people we term as investigators. Everybody, what Ahmed did, everybody in the team can do. What I do, everybody in the team is trained to be able to do it. So Malawi is not exceptional. We've done other neck-racking investigations in similar angles, and Ahmed has triumphed in that. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I love football or soccer. It's a simple game filled with joy, misery, spectacle. The beautiful game, as it's so rightfully known. Football is, by some margin, the biggest sport in the world. And it's played and watched, but most importantly, enjoyed almost everywhere. Now, Ghana is obsessed with the game. It's huge. And they've produced some fantastic players over the years, like Mike Lesian or Asamo Jian, and a true hero from my childhood, Tony Yeboah. It seems odd to talk about football on a podcast like this, but sport, corruption and organised crime have been enmeshed for as long as they have existed. Arnold the Brain Rothstein, the New York gangster, was indicted but not convicted for the Black Sox scandal which fixed the 1919 Baseball World Series. 
In Colombia, Pablo Escobar heavily invested into his local football team in Medellin, Atletico Nacional, and used the club to launder some of his vast fortune made from cocaine. In cricket, spot-fixing allegations that have plagued the sport over the years. This is where a player agrees before the match to deliver something specific that can be betted on. For example, the fourth ball of the seventh over, a bowler might deliver a no-ball. Agreed ahead of time, it allows a lot of money to be bet on that specific, unlikely occurrence where the odds are high. This is connected to organised crime in places like India and the UAE. For example, the infamous D Company and its leader, Darwood Ibrahim, who was designated a global terrorist by the US Department of the Treasury in 2003. Of course, boxing has a long history with organised crime. During the 50s, Frankie Carbo, a Lucchese crime family member and former gunman of Murder, Inc., controlled the International Boxing Club of New York, the IBC, fixing many of the lightweight and welterweight fights of the time. In more recent times, the so-called Kinahan organised crime group have been accused of a connection to boxing, although its alleged leader strongly denies this and has done for years. In horse racing, the Los Zetas in Mexico laundered drug money through the purchase of thoroughbred racehorses in the US, one of their horses even winning a prestigious race in 2020. This story is brilliantly told in a book called Bloodlines by Melissa Del Bosque. Anyway, you get the idea. Professional sport and criminality have a long and uncomfortable relationship in all parts of the world. And there was a specific incident that pushed Tiger IPI into an investigation which became known as Number 12. One of the influential things that got me to look into Number 12 was the fact that some time ago, in the 2000s, I had a rude awakening that one morning people had gone to the stadium to watch football and there was a stampede. Many people died. I went physically to the morgue to see the dead bodies, and I was so depressed that day. I sought to make more inquiries about how this happened. And the answer was simple, poor officiating. Somebody had whistled for a penalty, and they knew that was not a penalty, and they were sure that that person had been paid. I'm trying to say that the act of a referee in a small corner can lead to lots of problems. Look across the African continent and the world. You've seen that on many occasions, the stampedes that happen in stadiums as a result of poor officiating. So my mandate was simple. Confirm whether there is poor officiating or not and whether money exchanges hands from not only the Ghana Football Association, but up to the FIFA level. Number 12 premiered in Accra on Wednesday the 6th of June 2018, about one month after the same city hosted World Press Freedom Day. And let's just say this investigation made a real impact. In all this, over a hundred related and top football executives from the FIFA level, Confederation of African Football level, from the Ghana Football Association were all implicated and a lot of them were fired as a result of number 12 or betraying the game. Now, Ahmed was one of the key investigators in this corruption scandal. But the risk with any investigation like this is that it can seriously upset some very powerful people. And remember, some people don't like the investigative methods of ANAS and Tiger IPI. 
Bidia, Minna Becano Kura Wagana. Meanwhile, Adia Mian, a West Banamu. This is a video from a television channel called Net2 in Ghana. The man speaking is the owner of the television channel and he's called Kennedy Agyapong. He's a successful businessman and also an MP in the new patriotic party, the ruling party of Ghana. He's talking about number 12 and about the methods of Anas and Tiger IPI using words like entrapment, extortionist and evil. And then he starts talking about Ahmed, claiming to have pictures. He says, that boy is very dangerous. He lives here in Medina. Medina is a suburb of Accra. Agipon carries on, if you meet him anywhere, break his ear. If he ever comes to this premises, I'm telling you, beat him. Whatever happens, I will pay. Because he is bad. That Ahmed is a bad boy. And then he says, show them his pictures. Suddenly a face appears on screen with a name blazoned across the strapline. The veiler, Ahmed Hussein Swale. Kennedy Agyapom is fuming whilst he talks. So as you can see, rolling on the screen. This is a boy. Or a bad boy. That's the boy, Ahmed. That's him. If he comes here, beat him. This is the boy. He's a bad boy. We were very uncomfortable that day when he started spilling out complete fabrications and lies about us. And we knew that it was politically tinted, of course. We are used to this. We get politicians attacking us anytime you do an effective story. What we didn't expect was for a person to go up to this level, not only to show his pictures, but tell people that he should be wherever he's seen, he should be beaten. That was a worry to us. And we felt that it was very poor judgment on the side of whoever did it. And we thought that was going to be the end. But Ahmed's picture shown on that television network was not once it was consistent so that told us that whatever it is that person had a mindset that look let us do whatever we can to stop this person from doing the story that of course we we're threatened that if we published the story if we publish the story and knowing us and knowing the history that we have we are not moved by such threats at all so we indeed went ahead and published the story. So yes, within our camp, we weren't happy that uh, the pictures came out. We weren't happy about the threats. And that's why we went further to report it to the Ghana Police Service. We went further to report it to the Ghana Journalist Association and other international bodies that, look, this was what was being done to our colleague. And we were unhappy about it. After this incident, Tigray largely abandoned its offices, with their journalists leaving Accra for safety. Ahmed went north. Anas told Ahmed to take a step back for his own safety. His face was now out there and a powerful and influential politician had done it. Ahmed's family urged him to leave Ghana, but he refused, and eventually wanted to return to Medina so that he could pray in his normal mosque. We spoke on a number of occasions and he was very concerned for his life. 
The threats were serious. They came from a senior member of the ruling party, and understandably, he was worried. This is Jonathan Rosen, a senior researcher with the Committee to Protect Journalists. Yeah, I had been in contact with Ahmed during the months before his murder, following threats he received by a Ghanaian politician with the ruling party. That politician, Kennedy Adyapong, had gone on a television program broadcast by a TV station that he owned and railed against Ahmed and Anas and their investigative work. He instructed viewers to attack Ahmed while an image of uh, Ahmed's face was shown on the screen. He said, whatever happens, I'll pay because he's bad. Ajipong told his viewers this. This threat was particularly serious because Ahmed and the Tiger Eye team work undercover. Their faces are not publicly known. So to broadcast his image with the threat was you know, particularly serious. Additionally, before that, Ajipong had threatened Anas on another TV broadcast, criticizing his work and dragging his finger across his throat while making a choking sound. So it was in the context of these threats that CPJ was in contact with the Tiger Eye team, including Ahmed. And we published about these threats, calling for Ajipong to stop. And I was speaking to Ahmed about his situation. He told me during that time, he told me explicitly that publishing his image put his life in danger and that he worried that assassins would come after him. He said that people associated with the powers that be in Ghana can do anything and get away with it. And now we get into a discussion about why Ghana's reputation as a country where press freedom is encouraged has diminished. When politicians start threatening or encouraging violence against journalists, it's a slippery slope. And remember, Kennedy Agyapong was an MP in the ruling party. And given, at the time, Ghana's reputation for press freedom, you'd expect the new patriotic party to clamp down on this kind of behaviour. But they didn't. Politicians' own party should be taking responsibility and should act in response to hold you know, those that threaten journalists to account. As we understand it, there just wasn't this kind of notable action in response to these threats. There needs to be a clear, you know, loud repudiation of comments of this kind and disciplinary action for you know, comments that are bringing the party into disrepute. And yet, he continued with high-profile, prominent government duties. There don't seem to be any significant consequences. Uh, and it seems, in, in a certain way, that the ruling party condones this conduct, you know, tacitly validates it with, with inaction. More, more generally, you know, if, if the government is committed to press freedom, it needs to walk the talk uh, and act when members of its own uh, are in the wrong. A few months later, on the evening of January the 16th, 2019, Ahmed was driving his blue BMW through the streets of Medina in Accra. He'd left his brothers to go and check on his nephew, who'd been sick. A motorbike with two men on it trailed the car. Eventually, they pulled up alongside Ahmed's car and the person on the back of the motorbike had a gun. He fired at Ahmed, causing him to swerve suddenly and crash into a roadside shop. One of the men on the motorbike got off and walked calmly to the driver's side window of the BMW and fired two more shots at Ahmed. Such was the shock among the crowd of people watching that witnesses said that they thought they might be watching a late-night film shoot. But there were no cameras. 
no lighting. The shooter then turned to face the crowd, smiled, raised a finger to his lips, and then calmly left the scene. The crowd of people inched closer to the shattered left window of the BMW, and there lay Ahmed Hussein Swali Devella, journalist, husband, father of three, dead. That's it for part one of this episode of Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. A big thank you to Anas and Jonathan for being part of this episode. In the next episode, we'll look at the fallout from Ahmed's murder and where the responsibility lies, what his murder means for the freedom of press in Ghana, and how organised crime was involved. As always, there will be plenty of links in the podcast notes covering the research that's gone into this episode. This has been Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening.